Let's prepare to hear God's word by praying together words from Psalm 119. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Hear the word of God from Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are all here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in, on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers onto the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your ox, or your donkey, or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother, as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. 
the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, as we, um, as we just remembered in praying um, from Psalm 119, the word that you speak to us is life. Uh, Lord, we desire uh, to be turned from useless ways. We desire to be turned to the life you have for us. And for that to happen, Lord, we need um, hearts that are able to hear, that are soft and willing to be changed. And so that's what we pray for right now, um, that you would break through whatever distraction there might be or tiredness or whatever, that what we need to hear, you would help us to hear, that we would hear your words of grace and be changed by them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so when I was... Uh, in high school and early college, two of my favorite people were um, by the name of Paul and Jan McDonald. That's not what I called them because they were one of my best friend's parents, so they were Mr. and Mrs. McDonald. Um, and they kind of almost became like second parents to like half of our church's youth group. They oftentimes would have people into their house for studies or that kind of thing. And they were not popular because they were cool. I mean, Paul had some of the worst dad jokes I can ever remember. That was almost like his trademark, his, his bad humor. And, and Jan was just not stylish by any shape of the imagination. But what made them so beloved was they seemed to always have a place for you in their home and in their lives. And especially the second part was important. I mean, when you're at college and you're not wanting to always lean on your parents' understanding, you're trying to figure out who you are, but you need advice from someone, and people who are just there, willing to hear and to speak, it was, it was just great. So I remember, uh, I don't know, probably about 10, 15 minutes, 10, 15 years after college, I happened to be back in Massachusetts for a time, and I wanted to just to stop by and say hello. So, you know, obviously I checked ahead of time. In fact, it was right after getting off of the airplane. I rented a car, drove to Southboro, which is where they lived, and, and um, came to the door, and there was Jan, and she opened the door, and it was like there had been almost no time. She had just kind of like, she had this big smile, welcomed me in, sat me down on the recliner comfy chair. That was like the, the nice chair, and asked, you know, you look tired. Can I get you some hot cider? And in a couple of minutes, she was in the kitchen and came back, and there was something about suddenly in that moment where I just felt, again, welcomed and at home, and I was able to just kind of let down and relax and enjoy hanging out with her. So I want to contrast that with a, a second story of, of coming, I suppose you could say, into a household. Very different story. Um, this comes actually from one of my favorite novels where it, it uh, revolves around a specific character by the name of Sophos, who is this son of nobility. And when he is a teenager, a young adult, he is captured by slave traders, destined for some really bad future. And, but somehow, kind of along the way, when he is amongst the other slaves, a, a, a wealthy landowner sees and takes pity and recognizes that what's going to happen to Sophos is going to be terrible. So instead, he is able to bribe one of the, the overseers. He's able to buy Sophos for himself, pulling him out of whatever that destiny that was going to happen to Sophos might be. And instead, Sophos now belongs to this wealthy landowner. And when he's brought into the household, well, I mean... He still is a slave. He's been purchased. 
but he's a slave in a better condition than he would have been. He, he still has back-breaking labor, but he has good meals treated, you know, at the beginning and the end of the day, he's treated justly, generally. He has a community of people that, that he's able to get along well with. It is not the ideal life, but it is life. So you have these two pictures of kind of being brought into a home, and here's the question I want to ask you. Which of these, the Mrs. McDonald or the Sophos picture, better describes what happens when someone becomes a Christian? Now, we know, we know what the answer we're supposed to have is, right? We know that we're supposed to envision that when someone comes to Christ that there is this kind of welcome. But I, I wonder whether there is at least a part of us, at least at a subconscious level, that thinks that, that belonging to God is more like that second story that I told. And here's a question for you to consider to see if that might be the case. When do you think God is more pleased with you? When you are resting or when you're being productive for Him? Now, even as we think about it, perhaps we, in the moment, will say, but wait a second, doesn't the Bible actually use language like this? The Bible speaks of how Jesus bought us with his blood, that now we belong to him. It even speaks of us of being servants of God. Doesn't that imply that it's appropriate to think in some ways in that fashion? Or doesn't just the passage that we read suggest something like that? So we're working through Deuteronomy, and in chapter 5, we see this language of covenant. And, and what covenant means is it's kind of a formal definition of a relationship. Moses is saying here, when God called you to himself, you're a jealous God who loves you. He, he said, this is the way we are to relate to each other. And then we have what has sometimes been come to known as the Ten Commandments, literally the Ten Words, which is a succinct summary of that covenant. This is how we are to relate, God says. And doesn't it seem, at least in first reading, like it is all about performance? I mean, can't it sometimes sound to our ears like God is basically saying, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. This is what I did for you. Now, this is what you need to do for me. I, I suspect that that is oftentimes for many of us part of the understanding that operates in the back of our head. And then what I want to suggest to you this morning is that is a radically wrong understanding of what's going on here. And, and while there are many places we could point to, perhaps the, the clearest point in the passage that we read that subverts that entire reading of our relationship with God is found in the fourth commandment. And that is, we're going to spend a couple of weeks looking at the Ten Commandments. This week, we're going to be spending time just looking at that particular section, verses 12 through 15, and I just want to read that to begin with here. So we just heard it, but I'll, let's look at it again. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. 
Now, I just want to notice from the outset three things about this commandment. First, the commandment, as we've probably noticed, is a commandment for the seventh day to be a day sacred to God. Keep it holy. This, he says, is my day. In the same way that in the Old Testament there was a call to dedicate one-tenth to remind that, you know, God's people, that it all belonged to God. Here, God is saying, I want you to dedicate the seventh day to be my day. This is my holy day. And the second thing I want us to notice is that, is what God wants to take place on his holy day for his people Israel in the time of the Old Testament. It is not, during my holy day, I want you to do all sorts of religious activity. No, what is it that he commands? I want this to be a supremely unproductive day. Isn't that what it says? On it you shall not do any work. And the goal is simply stated so that you, not only you, but everyone, even your ox, might at the end of verse 14 it says, may rest. The day that's mine, the day that's holy and sacred, this day is a day of unproductivity. It is a day of rest. And the third thing I wanted to notice is that this is not the first time that this commandment has come. Notice how it starts. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you, which in other words means there is a backstory to this. And I want, so that we can understand what this commandment is, is talking about, what's going on here, to kind of trace that backstory for a little while. It actually brings us all the way back to the very beginning, to creation. You know, if you ever were to study kind of various creation accounts, all kind of religions, to my knowledge, have some sort of description of how this world came into being, you might notice a common trend when it comes to understanding how we, the role that we have, so the Babylonian account speaks of this kind of chaos, I mean, like, you know, God, you know, like creation, you know, the world is made from, like, the carcass of one God. It's, it's, it's messy. But what's clear is that human beings, when they exist, really exist for one reason. These fragile creatures are made almost accidentally, but their purpose is to do the dirty work that gods don't want. You know, there's kind of a deal. As long as you do your stuff, we'll keep you alive. Zeus. Zeus is really annoyed that humanity is even made. He thinks they're useless. But again, he's like, I won't destroy you as long as you keep on giving sacrifices to me. Then it'll be okay. Again and again, I mean, throughout, whenever you see these narratives, it seems that human beings have really one purpose. They are to do the dirty work that gods don't want to. They exist to meet the needs of the gods. And, and you could not come with a more different understanding of how we were made than what Genesis declares to us. I mean, what, what does God do when he makes humanity? First thing he does, he blesses them. He, he invites them into this life of, of fruitfulness and, and ruling over this creation he's given to them. He next feeds them. He says, I have these trees for you to eat. He is not the one being fed. He is feeding them. And then the most remarkable thing after, after both of these things, the most remarkable thing probably in this whole narrative is after that, he invites them to rest. Because we're told that after the six days of creation on the seventh day, God rests. He, he savors. He delights in what he has made 
And we're not supposed to understand this as like a brief intermission that after day seven, day eight, he starts creating again. No, interestingly, in the narrative, while every other day finishes and there was evening, it doesn't say that at the end of the seventh day. The, the, the seventh day is supposed to be this continuing reality. In other words, what we're supposed to understand is this is the destination. This is the culmination of what God did for creation. He, he made all things so that at the very conclusion of things there could be rest. And, and not just for him, because it says he blesses the day. He, he makes that seventh day holy. And the implication is, this is for everything. This is for all of creation. This is for humanity. Everyone has been brought into this moment where they are to enjoy this ongoing experience of rest. That, Genesis tells us, is what we were made for. Now, before we start kind of misunderstanding what I'm saying here, we should recognize that, that rest in Scripture is not just doing nothing. If that was, this would be almost kind of like a depressing kind of story. Because sometimes blissful inactivity is exactly what we want. We've just been straining ourselves for a while. But at a certain point, if we're inactive, we move from rest to restlessness, Right? And so I was noticing, I thought this was helpful, one biblical scholar, when he was kind of canvassing the way that Scripture speaks of rest, says that we should understand that rest in the Bible generally is not about blissful inactivity, but unhampered constructive activity. Not blissful inactivity, but unhampered constructive activity. If you think about what's happening in the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve gardening, and yet this is the state of rest. Which makes sense. As I said, doing nothing sometimes is what we need, but oftentimes it's what's not. Think of, think of what you find most restful. Perhaps for you, you enjoy going out for a good run. Or breaking a sweat playing tennis. Or, or maybe you enjoy kind of focusing your attention playing music or, or painting or doing something artistic. Or maybe you like doing something that feels constructive, like woodworking or gardening. All of these things can be rest, because rest isn't just about inactivity. It's about a different kind of cessation. It's about a freedom from certain things that drain us, right? A freedom from anxiety and stressfulness, a freedom from frustration, a freedom from feeling like things are being opposed to us that just kind of wear us down. Put more positively, rest is about a certain kind of harmony, isn't it? There is this there's sometimes almost this sense of flow where, where you kind of almost lose sense of time as you're doing something because you feel like what you are doing is just connected and right with the world around you. When we're truly resting well, there is this delight in what is good that fills us, oftentimes fills us with gratitude. And, and that's what we should be having in our mind when we see the Bible speaking about God kind of bringing creation to a culmination in rest. You, you have this image of Adam and Eve delighting in each other in this human fellowship, walking with God and knowing Him and seeing Him face to face in a land that they are able to cultivate and enjoy. That is rest. And that we are meant to understand from Genesis is what you and I were made for. The creation account says that 
Essentially, of the two stories that I said at the beginning, it is very clear that the way that God made us is he made us, and he brought us in, and he welcomed us, and he gave us food, and he invited us to rest. It was the Mrs. McDonald story. That is how you and I are wired. That is the way that we were built. Of course, that's not our experience right now. It, it, Everything that I said is what kind of opposes rest seems to be what defines reality, where we talk about ongoing frustration, feeling of opposition, where there's, there's chaos and there is confusion, and, and sometimes it can feel like that's all that life is, that life is just an ongoing kind of battle trying to keep the craziness at bay and keeping the disorder from overwhelming us. But it's important to understand that as we even recognize that that's our current reality, that this is not how the world is in terms of how it was meant to be. It's how the world has become. It's, it's what happened because of, as Genesis 3 tells us, uh, when, when we rebelled against God, when we disconnected ourselves from God, became alienated from Him, everything came apart. As humanity was removed from Eden, Humanity also was exiled from the rest that we were made for. And as the, the curse of God in Genesis 3 tells us, what was restful work now becomes labor because the world is now opposed to us. There are thorns and thistles and serpents that bite. And what is labor, whether we're talking about caring for the soil or whether we're talking about giving birth, what is labor becomes painful. In fact, there's a certain kind of work if we could even call it work, that more and more in Scripture is depicted as the opposite of rest, that is warfare, where there is just nothing but fighting and agony and frustration without any clear point oftentimes. And that, that is the condition of the life that we experience. But ever since that moment where in some ways humanity lost the rest for which it was made, there is this haunting echo in the human soul knowing this is what we were made for and longing to experience it again. There's this poignant moment in this long genealogy of Genesis 5 where it talks about one person giving birth and dying and, and so on and so on, where, where Lamech, the great-great-great-great-grandson of, of Adam and Eve, gives birth, I mean, like, you know, begets a son, and, and he names his son Noah, which literally means rest. And he kind of almost says a prayer, may this one bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. There's this agonizing longing for rest. Except even as that becomes more and more just the reality, it becomes something that people just almost become accustomed to, so that, in a sense, we almost forget that we were made for something different. I mean, one of the examples of this is, is slavery. Slavery is choosing to see humans as nothing more than laborers, nothing more than workers. But even more subtly, it's how we begin to think of ourselves. Even more subtly, we begin to see ourselves, our worth, our identity in what we do. Isn't that what we see even in our present day reality? I was reading something the other day that talked about how, how we have kind of almost reconstructed the family so that we can work more rather than reconstructing work so that we can be a better family. How, how often do we think of rest as just a means to an end, that we need to take a break, 
so that we can be refreshed and work more. It is so common that we see ourselves as nothing more than than productive people, that that's who we're supposed to be. And it can even translate into the way that we relate to God, even as we come to know God, even as we come to to realize that, that we are saved through Christ Jesus. There can still be this sense that what God really wants of me is to be productive, to live a productive life. And that's what is pleasing to him. And what we don't realize is we have just imported this pagan understanding that God made us to, to meet his needs, so different from what God himself says. And it's in this context, this forgetfulness, where we lose sight of who we are and who our God is, that God gives this command to his people in the Old Testament saying, this is what you need to do so that you don't forget. So this command first comes before even the Ten Commandments are given. It comes almost immediately after, actually, God rescues his people. You might remember that Israel had been living in Egypt for a very long time, and for at least multiple decades, they were slaves. And I have no idea what it would be like to be a slave decade after decade after decade, but I would imagine it starts shaping how you view yourself. When you are seen as nothing more than labor, you start seeing yourself as nothing more than labor, and that's that's what gives you a sense of identity over time. And so you have to imagine that as God frees these people from being enslaved by Pharaoh and Egypt and brings them out through the Red Sea, that they are probably naturally thinking, now we have a new master. We had one before, we have a new one now. He is the one that we must serve in the same way that we serve Pharaoh. So what does God do to subvert all of that? Right when they come out of the Red Sea, after they're celebrating, he brings them to an oasis and they experience peace. And then as they begin to journey, what does God do? He He feeds them. Every day, he gives them bread from heaven. He is the one who meets their needs. And and as he does give them this food, what what does he tell them? Probably most striking of all. He says, okay, on the sixth day, on Friday, you are going to need to, I'll give you double and collect double because on Saturday, I want you to sleep in. On Saturday, I don't want you to feel like you have to get stuff done. Saturday is just going to be a day of relaxing. Now, do you understand what he's doing? Do you see how much this mirrors the creation account? How God is trying to help his people remember, this is who I am. This is what you are made for. In case they miss it, when when you come to God speaking on Mount Sinai, speaking the Ten Commandments in Exodus, as he says, this is the command that I have, remember the Sabbath, he then goes on to explain, for in six days the Lord made the world and then rested on the seventh day. And he's saying, do you understand? I I want you every week to have a day where you can remember again what you were made for. I want you every week to stop and recognize that you are not working creatures whose existence is just for laboring, but that you are made to enjoy my rest. You are made, in this world was made, to enjoy the rest that I designed for it. Which would have been crazy. Because think about... People in that day literally were dependent upon the fruit of their labor to survive. 
They needed to make sure their crops were okay. They needed to make sure that their livestock were okay. They would always have something to do. Fences to be built, plows to be fixed, weeds to be done, and to say, but no, one day out of seven, even though this, your life depends on it, you are not going to do any of that. You are just going to rest and rely upon me. How countercultural that would have been. When we now get 40 years later, where Moses reiterates the Ten Commandments, he, he explains this fourth commandment in a slightly different way. I don't know if you noticed it, but he says, remember in verse 15, you were a slave. That is, you know, if you will, a full-time laborer in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, he commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. You were slaves, but you're not any longer. You were treated as nothing more than labor and productivity, but that is not who you are. I have brought you out of that. Don't return to that, but recognize that you were made by me for rest. Do you see if we really are listening to this how it is impossible for us to hear the Ten Commandments of God saying, I have done this for you, now you need to do this for me. He is saying the very opposite. That is not the kind of God that I am. I am a God who seeks to bring you into joy and to rest. We have, we've kind of traced backwards the backstory. If we were to continue and look forward, we would see a couple of things. We would see that it seems like Israel is constitutionally incapable of experiencing the rest that God desires for them to experience. Through, through their sin, through their disobedience, he is offering them this kind of Edenic existence in this promised land with him dwelling among them in the temple and the Sabbath, and they just blow it. Eventually, their sin is so bad that they once again are exiled from an Edenic existence, and they are, they're, they're kicked out of the land. And, and you sense them almost forgetting that they are ever meant for more than this. They, they are forgetting the kind of gracious God that they have. But God doesn't forget. Again and again, you see, when he inspires his prophets to speak, they will keep on holding out this image of this future rest that God continues to have for his people. And that's why centuries later, when, when Jesus is walking this earth, and he says to the people, come to me, you who are labor, who are weary and heavy laden, come to me, and I will give you rest. What, what he is saying in that moment is that that rest that you were made for, that, that rest that every Sabbath celebration throughout all of human history has pointed to, that rest is what I have come to give you. When he went to the cross, it was to destroy all of those things that stand in the way, to destroy the disorder, the chaos, to deal with our guilt that keeps us from God, to bring death to destruction. He conquered it all. And in his resurrection... He began something new. It speaks of a new creation. It's like his, his resurrected body is like that first flower that comes after winter where you see new life is about to take place. Something new has begun in the resurrection of Jesus, a new reality where there is no more frustration, no more disharmony, no more sin, no more death, perfect relationship with God and the Bible says that he has already ascended into heaven. He has already entered into that rest. 
And because he is our forerunner, he is our leader, he is our head, there is a real sense that we are now there with him. That we are seated in heaven with Christ. That within us there is something now that is part of this new creation life, this new harmony with God. That is our future that is secure, seated with God in heaven. We are being invited to enter into this rest. And yet, that's not also our full reality, is it? If you are a believer in Christ, you live kind of this dual existence where on one hand, your future is secure, and spiritually, you know where your, your home is, and yet, right now, we are living where the battle continues. We're told we, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers. We see all of the ways that evil is at work until... Until injustice is over, until the vulnerable are no longer oppressed, until we are made whole, we cannot rest. And yet we are told still to never forget who we are, that we are not people who are just about doing stuff, that we are people loved by God, children of God, meant to inherit rest. And that's what the Sabbath command was meant to teach us. Now, there are, um, as people look at the fourth commandment, there's an ongoing question discussion amongst Christians about exactly what it means to obey the fourth commandment or observe it today. Some Christians interpret the Sabbath command as something that continues to be obeyed in terms of having a specific day that's kept holy. The Westminster Confession of Faith, for example, teaches that, that, that we no longer observe the seventh day, but we've moved it to the first day, but still we're supposed to set it apart in a different way. Others within the Reformed tradition, like Calvin will point to a place like Colossians 2 that speak about how the Sabbath being a shadow of what is to come and Jesus being the fulfillment. And will say that while we are still called every week to celebrate the resurrection and to gather together, there's no longer a sacred day in the same way. I want to suggest while that is an important discussion, that is actually not the primary thing we should be thinking about when we get to the fourth commandment. Because there is something that's even beneath and more important what's driving the fourth commandment. And that is a call to you and to me, to remember who we are and to remember what we were made for. Let me ask you this simple question. Do you have a hard time stopping? Do you feel uncertain about whether it's a good idea to do things more slowly so that you can savor as you go? Do you feel guilty if you feel at times like you are resting too much and not being productive enough? What does that say about how you view yourself? What does that say about how you view your God? I remember when I was soon after college, um, I, I used to have a, a slightly more strict understanding of the Sabbath than I do today. And, and what that meant was that I, I wanted to make the day as full as I could of good things for God. I you know, obviously was at church in the morning, and I would spend a lot of time throughout the day trying to read theology, trying to pray, doing whatever I thought was holy. I wanted to make that day as productive as possible for God. And by doing that, I completely misunderstood what God wanted me to do. In fact, I was misunderstanding, I think, the entire way the Ten Commandments were framed as if I needed to be someone who was doing things for God. I was misunderstanding, I think, the entire nature of my relationship. God doesn't need a single thing from me. 
He has everything. That's not the way this relationship works. God made me and he made you. He saved me and he saved you, not so that we could meet some need that he has, but so that we can experience his grace. He he called us to himself so that, like with Mrs. McDonald, he could, could welcome us home, give us food, and invite us to rest. Isn't that what perhaps the most famous poem in all the world, the psalm that we know best, reminds us every time we hear it? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does he do? He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. How does it end? Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a picture of rest. 